Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you like what you hear, please press subscribe. And also, if you could leave a review and rate this podcast, that would be amazing. Um, Thank you to the many of you who have already done that. It means so much to me, and I read every comment. So please review, rate, subscribe, and uh, tell your friends about this podcast. Thank you. Today's episode has been sponsored by Jiggy Puzzles, a female-founded puzzle company with each design created by a female artist who gets a percentage of every sale. Each comes with puzzle glue to preserve it and hang it as art because you don't have enough of your kids' art on the walls. Puzzles have been connected to decreased anxiety, dementia, stress, and improved sleep and memory. Who knew? Get 10% off with code ZIBBY, all caps, Z-I-B-B-Y. I had such a nice time interviewing Rachel Beanland, who I had previously had on my Z-I-G-T-V show. So if you want to watch us in person, you can go to my Instagram at Zibby Owens and watch us chatting on the IGTV feature. Rachel Beanland is the author of novel Florence Adler Swims Forever. Her essays have appeared in Creative Nonfiction and Broad Street, among other places. And I think by the time this comes out, she will have received her MFA at Virginia Commonwealth University. And she also holds a bachelor's degree in art history and journalism from the University of South Carolina. Before turning to writing full-time, Rachel worked in public relations and nonprofit management. She currently lives in Virginia with her husband and three children. Welcome, Rachel. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you so much for having me. And I was just saying that I know we did an Instagram Live, so for anybody who wants to see your beautiful face, they can watch that. But I also wanted to do a podcast to go a little more in depth. So thanks for coming back. <laughs> oh, no, I really appreciate it. I appreciate everything you've been doing during this crazy time. It's You've been really keeping readers and writers connected. So I appreciate it. No problem. Okay, Florence Adler, Swims Forever. Tell me about this book and about how it's actually your own family's story and all the rest of it, how you came up with it and what it's about. Yeah. So I've been kind of walking around with this story in my head since I was a little girl, um, or at least a portion of the story, I guess, was in my head, you know, my whole life. My mother, you know, always used to tell me the story about what had happened when my grandmother was a little girl, the kind of the basis of this book, which is that I had a great, great aunt named Florence who was training to swim the English Channel when she drowned off the coast of Atlantic City. And that particular summer, my grandmother was actually only six. She was living with her grandparents for the summer because her mother was in the hospital on bed rest. She had lost a baby the summer before and she was pregnant again. And, you know, back then you went, you, you went to the hospital. People, women were starting to have babies in hospitals, just barely kind of, and they didn't know what had gone wrong. And, and so there she was in the hospital. And so when Florence drowned, my, my grandmother was actually on the beach the, the day it happened. And the family made the decision not to tell Florence's sister, my grandmother's mother, that her sister had drowned. And so they all kind of went in on this secret. And when I was little, I, you know, heard the story. And in my head, it was like all summer. And, you know, my great-great-grandmother was visiting every day in the hospital. And, and my mother always told the story, like, you know, what kind of strength this my great-great-grandmother must have had to to keep this secret, you know, to be able to walk into that hospital room every day and, you know, not breathe a word about the fact that her other daughter had just drowned. And I was always super impressed with the story, but I was also always very interested in the fact that 
they had kept the secret. And, you know, my mother positioned it when we used to talk about it, like, well, of course, that's what you would do. You would, of course, you would keep the secret. And I just remember, you know, even at a very young age, being like, well, what if she had wanted to know? And... So even as I got older and we would kind of rehash the story and every now and then my grandmother would weigh in as well. And I still just kind of never wrap my head around the idea that, that this secret was, was that keeping the secret was the right thing to do. And when I started thinking about what to write a novel about, it was kind of a natural topic that I felt like we could come back to that, that there was, there was unresolved business. And, you know, of course, over the years, that story influenced so many other stories in my family. You know, we became a secret keeping family, I think in part because we elevated what my great-great-grandmother had done, this, this decision to, to withhold this information. You mentioned that because you're, there was this big secret in the family, sort of high up in the family tree, that it trickled down to create a, a sort of a secrecy lore in your family. How do you know? Like, what 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 other little secrets? And are these big secrets or little secrets? I'm, I'm totally fascinated by this. Well, I think over the years, because we knew that, you know, my grandmother's kind of actions over the course of that summer had been put on this pedestal, it became pretty obvious, particularly times when one of us was sick or there was some sort of, you know, either a health scare or anything where we were worried about you know, our grandparents being worried. And I can remember a time in particular when my, my brother was very sick when he was, I was 16 and he was 14. And, you know, we really didn't know whether he was going to make it. It was like an encephalitis, you know, it was just a bad illness. And I can remember us not telling my grandparents until he was completely in the clear. And, you know, I knew we were doing it at the time, but I do, even at that time, I, I knew it was connected to the fact that, you know, my grandmother and kind of everyone that came after her had really believed that like what my, what my great, great grandmother did, this decision to, to not talk about Florence's death was kind of at the, at the root of it. Interesting. Yeah. So it's almost this like constant withholding. <laughs> yeah. And, and I can remember when my father got sick with cancer, he, he died about 10 years ago. We kind of had to sit down with, with my parents and say like, okay, enough is enough. Like, we really, we want to know, like, you know, we, we want to be able to decide how we spend our time. And, and, you know, it, it became important to, to know that we were kind of receiving the same information that, that they were receiving. I'm sorry about your father. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. So when you go to make decisions now, you have children, do you feel the need to keep things a secret as well? Or are you like, do you overcompensate? I know so much of parenting is a reaction to how people were parented. Do you feel the need to be more open or are you, do you want to sort of keep the secrecy thing going? You know, I think I try to be more open, but it is generational. So like I try to be more open with my children, but I also know that my mother appreciates having certain information withheld from her. So, you know, there are times where I find myself withholding information about my children, you know, from my mother. because I know it's what she would want, but I do try to think to myself, like, well, would it, would it, make me feel better if she knew or would it, you know, would it make us closer if she knew? Like, is she really going to understand who I am if I haven't told her this important piece of information about me? So it's something I weigh and it's certainly something that I was weighing when I was writing the book. And I I think in as I was writing the book, when I was writing my great-great-grandmother's character, 
Esther, I ended up having a lot more sympathy for her than I maybe thought I would when I went into writing the book. How so? I think, you know, when I started writing the book, it was very cut and dry for me. I thought like Esther made the wrong call. <laughs> you know, she, <laughs> she should have told Fanny everything for Fanny sitting in her, you know, hospital bed and is, you know, none the wiser. And, you know, as I moved further into the story and imagined this kind of entire family and and what they were dealing with, I could see the benefits of, you know, withholding the information from Danny. There's a scene in the book where Joseph and Stuart are talking and Stuart's kind of asking him to justify the secret keeping. And Joseph says something about new life always being the most important thing. And that's a line that I took directly from my grandmother, something she had said to me in her older years. You know, when I would ask her about the story, she always kind of felt like, no, of course, it was the right thing. You always do whatever you can to protect new life. And so, yeah, I, I thought that by the time I finished the book, I would have a lot of clarity, <laughs> but, I, I, but I don't know that I actually, I don't know that I actually do. <laughs> there was a lot of Jewish influence in the book, including like you saying some of the blessings and that I feel like that really coursed nicely throughout the narrative. Was that a conscious choice or was it just because that's the way the family was or how did that come about? I grew up in a Jewish family, not very religious, I would say, more just kind of culturally Jewish. My mother was actually the first generation to marry outside the faith. And so my father was a Methodist from South Carolina. But I, I definitely knew some of the customs. I mean, you know, we were pretty relaxed. But so I, it didn't ever occur to me not to set this amongst a Jewish family because it, of course, had been a Jewish family. And, and also, I think there are kind of some mourning rituals that are particularly significant in the Jewish faith. And... And I think that when you take those rituals away, which is, of course, what happened to this family as they were keeping the secret, that becomes like a particularly poignant part of the story, you know, because the morning rituals are, of course, like there for a reason and can be a, a help for people as they're grieving. So I did always want to to set it with amongst the Jewish family. But that being said, I still had to do a lot of research to to get the the, the Jewish parts right. And I think, you know, a story I, I kind of like to tell is when I was selling the book, a lot of the editors who were interested were Jewish. And I would tell the story, you know, they'd want to know what it was based on. And I would tell my family story and, and they would say, you know, we read the novel and it's just such a Jewish novel. Like it's so Jew- this secret is so Jewish. And I was like, what? <laughs> it didn't really <laughs> occur to me that this idea of secret keeping or this like desire to protect the young or, you know, the, the kind of mother knows best like idea. It didn't really occur to me that this was a Jewish story. It was just a story. And I was setting it amongst a Jewish family because that was where it happened. But I have since had a number of people say to me like, yeah, this is it's pretty Jewish like, in this <laughs> in this respect. So I've been kind of mulling that over. But then of course I talked to Catholics who say the same thing. They're like, it's very Catholic. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think anytime you maybe get a group of people where they have big faith and a lot of kind of family members who have differences of opinion and maybe strong matriarch, a similar story could could take place. 
You know, it's funny when you talk about the customs of mourning because, you know, I know your book is not coming out till July, which is when this will air. But when we're talking, we're still in the pandemic, which either way won't have been that long before. And so many people are now robbed of those customs. And, you know, Zooming Shiva is not the same, obviously, as being able to get together and, and mourn appropriately. And I think that's been one of the things that's been ridiculously hard for people during this time is not to be able to fall back on those rituals. Yeah. And and I think that like that was one of the things that always got me about keeping the secret was, you know, I thought, well, first of all, who knows how strong Fanny was or wasn't, you know, in, in this hospital bed, right? Like, could she have withstood like finding out this information, you know, I think women are a lot stronger than we give them credit for being in literature and in life. But I also think that, you know, by, by keeping the secret from her, she was robbed of an ability to, to mourn in real time. And I remember after my father died, I really, that day he died, it was like, I looked at the world so much differently. He, he had died overnight and the next morning, it's like in one way, the family was kind of doing these regular things, like we had to eat and we had to go outside and we had to, you know, arrange things. And and I can remember looking at this tree and like the way that the, the buds were coming out on, on this particular tree in my parents' backyard. It was just almost like overwhelming that life was happening at the same time that, you know, that we had just lost him. And I always think about that because I think it would be so strange to lose someone, but not be able to mourn them at the time of their passing, because there is something about like the energy of, I don't know, just the time and place in which they died. So it is a strange thing to find out much later. Crazy. So tell me about how you ended up becoming a novelist. Yeah. So <laughs> I've always been a big reader and I always had been a big writer, but I was also very, very practical. And so when I went to college, I probably should have been an English major. And instead I studied journalism and was like concentrating on PR. And, you know, after college, I studied art history as well. So that was a little less practical, but I, I was always thinking about like, well, what, what kind of job can I have? Like I need a job. And I got out of college and I got PR jobs, like right out of the gate. And I had worked in PR for, I was about 35 when I started this novel. And I just had this nagging urge, like, you know, I'd, I'd been writing on the side, I'd been writing, working on other projects. I wrote some essays and, you know, just was kind of always doing something on the side. But I very much had this feeling that like my life was off balance and the writing shouldn't have been the thing on the side. It should have been the thing at the center of my life. And so when I had this idea for this novel, I, I just got super serious about it. And I would write every morning before I went to work. I was working 40 hours a week and I had three kids and it was crazy. And Oh my gosh, I don't know how you did that. So I wrote from 4.30 a.m. to 7 a.m., seven days a week for two years oh, to, to write the novel. That's, yeah. I, I, yeah. oh my gosh, I want to like give you a standing ovation for that. It was it was crazy. And and I had gone back to school to get an MFA in fiction at the same time. I was doing it part-time, like taking a class at night. And so just kind of like everything was happening at the same time. Like I, I just, you know, had this kind of couple of years where I was like, if I don't do this now, I'm not going to do it. And so I did it. And the novel, I finished the novel, I guess, 
in the fall of 2018. And we sold it. It sold in February of 2019. And then I'm graduating from the MFA program this spring. So it's all just kind of come together. Wow. But it was a lot of work getting here. (laughs) Would you do it over again? Yeah. I mean, no, I would definitely do it over again. The, The question is like, what would I have done differently in my 20s? You know, like to maybe not take this long to get to this point. You know, it's interesting because you think like, I think to myself like, oh, it would have been so much easier to get an MFA at 22. And why didn't I figure that out? But I also think that I had so much more to write about (laughs) at 35 than I did at 22 that I think I would have been writing really different material. I know specifically when I think about this book, I don't think I could have written it had I not gone through the experience of losing my father, there's like that experience of going through grief makes for me, like made me so much more able and willing to write about grief in a way that, you know, I hope readers find to be, you know, compelling. So yeah, I think maybe everything happens when it's meant to happen. And, you know, I certainly have three kids. It's writing about children, about parenting is, different now than it would have been in my 20s. I don't know. I feel like most writers now in their early 20s who are writing are automatically shoved into the YA category. Like, it doesn't even matter if their books are about young adults. I feel like every young author, they're saying like, okay, you're a young adult fiction author. Have you noticed that? I don't know. Yeah. And yeah. And it's, it's funny. I'm not as like attuned to YA as I should be because I, I do know like, yeah, it seems to be like the the craze now. And I know a lot of friends who read a lot of YA. But, you know, I think I was maybe in the last generation where like you were just thrown into the deep end at 12. And like, I was just reading all my mother's books. and Me too. Which was probably beneficial in some ways because I was reading stuff that was totally over my head. But I was also like, this is amazing. Oh, I got a full-on education from my mother's books. Yes, <laughs> she was yes, like, yes. Exactly. She, like, she would just like, you know, plop stacks of these like, you know, thick, juicy dramas on my desk at like age 12. And now that I have a 12-year-old, almost 13-year-old, I'm like, I cannot believe what she was giving me to read. (laughs) I think the same thing. I think the same thing. It's like, you know, we we have such a better sense of what our kids are reading than. I mean, maybe, I guess our mothers knew what we were reading. They just were like, well, this is all you got. I I guess so. I mean, I don't know. (laughs) Like Judith Kranz was like my, you know, my go-to. But anyway. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So funny. Well, having finished this book, are you going to write another book? Or is this like the big story you had to tell? Or like, what's your plan? What do you, what do you hope to do now? Yeah. I mean, I'm no, I definitely want to write more. I'm excited to kind of be in the position where I get to write for a living now. It's like, that was the dream, right? Yes. So I'm definitely working on, well, up until recently, I've been working on trying to graduate with this, with my MFA. So it was a weird way to end my final semester. And of course, like everyone else in the country, I ended it on Zoom. But yeah, now I'm I'm kind of turning my attention to the next project and playing around with a couple things and doing a bunch of research and, you know, hopefully mark your calendars for a couple of years from now and <laughs> there'll be something new, something new out. I'll mark it now. Wouldn't that be funny if I yeah. actually, maybe I will, Rachel, maybe I'll put it in my calendar in April 22nd or whatever in like 2025, you and I'll have a chat. Right, right. <laughs> Check in with me. Yeah. <laughs> Our annual check-in. <laughs> Do you have any advice for aspiring authors? Yeah. You know, I think for me, 
something big happened like in my late twenties after my, my, I was 29 when my father died. And at that point I started writing every day. And in the beginning I was writing about him and that was kind of what inspired me to, to write that regularly. And then kind of over the years, I started working on other projects that, that had nothing to do with them, but that was the first time where I really had a dedicated kind of writing practice where I was, I was working every day, you know, in the mornings is usually when I'm freshest. And so I would wake up and, and work. And I do think that there is something about showing up every day to do it. And I, I know like there are other people who argue the exact opposite say like, no, that's crazy. But for me, that worked really well because it, it was just kind of, it became a part of my day. It became just like a, a habit, like drinking coffee or, you know, any of the things we do to kind of like get ready and get ourselves psyched up for the day. And I became like much more productive during that time period and found that I was like accomplishing goals that I had set for myself, you know, in my writing life. And so there, there was something really kind of magical that started happening when I, when I was doing it every day. So I think for me, that's my biggest piece of advice. And, and I even still have to remind myself of it now that Florence Adler's done and I'm on to the next thing. It's like, remember, Rachel, <laughs> it feels really good to write every day. <laughs> and, and you just get more done, you know, the pages do add up that way. So I think that would be my biggest piece of advice. And, and then, of course, just reading a lot. I always try. I'm not, you know, some people will not read the books that they're trying to write, like, you know, they don't, if they're writing something, they don't want to read stuff that's similar. And I, I don't really subscribe to that. I, I try to read lots of really good literature all the time and just kind of get, soak it up. I agree. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> yeah. I was just wondering, did you have any alternate titles? Sometimes people have like all these crazy different titles that they considered. And I just get curious sometimes. That's really funny. It's had the same title for years now. And I probably the first year I was working on it, didn't have a title for it. But by about the midway point, I had kind of called it in my head, Florence Adler's Once Forever. And then when I sold it, the Simon & Schuster loved it. And they never talked about another title. And then recently, as books have been coming out, I'm like, man, there are a lot of titles with first name, last name does something. So it may like, you know, there may come a day where it's like, we're all done with first name, last name in a title. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, no, it, it, I think it works on a lot of different levels. But I found an old note in my iPhone that was like, my husband and I had been on a car trip and we had been brainstorming titles. And I it had so many silly ones on it. And I forwarded it to my agent and said like, just in case you want to laugh, like here's everything <laughs> we thought of before Florence Others was forever. And it was kind of, a hoot because they were bad, but <laughs> Florence Adler's Once Forever, it worked. It does. No, it's a beautiful title. Yeah. It's a beautiful title. Yeah. I love it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you for coming on and for bearing with the technical issues and for also doing the Instagram live show with me. And I'm really excited about your book coming out. And even the cover is like so calming and like, I don't know, it's just such a great book to have and to give and to read. So anyway, Aww. so well, thank you. Thanks very much. <laughs> No Thanks problem. for everything. It's really been wonderful to see everything you, you've been working on this last month or two. It's, you've, you've kept us all sane, so oh, I appreciate you. it. <laughs> I wish I could say the same for myself. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay. Thanks so much. And stay in touch. I'll check in with you in five years. <laughs> okay. Sounds great. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. 
please don't forget, subscribe, rate, and review this on iTunes. Tell your friends about it. Spread the word. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much to Jiggy Puzzles for sponsoring today's episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Get 10% off with code Zibby at JiggyPuzzles.com. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at Zibby at ZibbyOwens.com. Thank you.